Acts chapter 1, self-centered Bible interpretation, and me playing the guitar. Kids tell? All right. Welcome, Grace Snappers, to the Grace Snapper podcast. This is a podcast of Grace Church of Napa Valley, and I'm your host, Jess Arns. First of all, a quick introduction to why do we call it the Grace Snapper? It's really silly, actually. It's called the Grace Snapper because it's because Grace Napa, Grace Napa, sounds like someone from Boston saying, yeah, I took a walk on the pier and I caught a Grace Snapper. So I called it Grace Snapper, Grace Snapper as in the fish. So there you go. People have been asking. I thought about just leaving you in the dark, but uh, I don't want to answer that question anymore. So that's what it is. All right. No special meaning. The Gray Snapper Podcast, okay? And it or, sort of sounds like those funny little uh, local community newspapers, you know, the Gray Snapper, so it's sort of a weekly bulletin type of thing. Anyway, welcome to the Gray Snapper. Once again, I'm Jess Arns, and so today we're going to do a few things. We're going to go through the book of Acts chapter 1, and I just want to I just want to read through some scripture, uh, hopefully to encourage you, make a couple comments, won't be real deep, but just want to uh, be encouraged by, really, in the book of Acts, the the way that the Holy Spirit used ordinary men and women to do amazing things in spreading the gospel. And so I hope that will be an encouragement to you, and we'll just work through that as the podcast progresses. Uh, we will also get into a weekly warning about uh, self-centered scripture interpretation, uh, we'll talk a little bit about proper biblical interpretation and uh, a, a strange word called hermeneutics. So I know you'll be blessed. With nothing further to do, let's get to walking through Scripture. Let me see. All right, Acts chapter 1. Here we go, starting in verse 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that began, Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he had presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of forty days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Really cool. Just a couple of notes here. Luke writing this account. He interviewed all of the witnesses and was even a part of some of the stories in here, and he wrote down an orderly account so that you would know uh, what actually happened. And so I just, I love that. Scripture was, is rooted in reality. These are accounts of things that actually happened. And then, I love this too in verse 3, um, Jesus presenting himself to his apostles over the period of about 40 days. So he didn't just kind of blow in and blow out. Uh, he showed up and was around for 40 days, and he was speaking to them more plainly the things concerning the kingdom of God. So what's really cool is, you know, in, in the Gospels, Jesus kind of veiled different things. He he kept some things hidden, less explicit. So then he is crucified, buried, and then he is raised again. And then over that period of 40 days, he teaches his disciples and his apostles more specifically and more explicitly the things concerning the kingdom. So then, picking up in verse 4, he gathered them together, and he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, when, the, when they had come together, verse 6, 
they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Stop there real quick. The disciples are wondering, okay, is now the time? You're coming back. You're going to set up the kingdom. And he basically says, don't worry about the timing of it. Don't worry about when it's going to happen. You just be faithful to what I've called you to do because I'm giving you the Holy Spirit who will empower you. And for what purpose? In verse 8, to be his witnesses. Okay, so he doesn't give you, he's not giving you his Holy Spirit so that you can conquer the world, so that you can do amazing miracles, although they, the apostles will do amazing miracles. But the main purpose and power of the Holy Spirit is that they will be effective witnesses uh, for Christ. All right. Verse 9, after that, he said these things, he li- and he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside him, stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. It's pretty amazing. He went up. He's going to come right back the same way and to the same spot on the Mount of Olives. And then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, Behold, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of all, and and all his intestines gushed out. Okay, just a side note. (laughs) And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their language the field was called Hakeldama, which is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and... Let another man take his office. Therefore, it is necessary that the men, that of the men who have accompanied accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, "Lord, Lord, you know the hearts of all men. Show which one of these you have you t- which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. We'll just stop there. I just think it's edifying to read through scripture, even though it's a long portion. But uh, I really love this verse here, verse twenty-four, the apostles prayed, you, Lord, you know the hearts of all men. And even even the apostles didn't 
believe that they knew the hearts of, of the men that they had spent all this time with. Only God knew knows the heart. And so we depend upon him to uh, put the right people in positions of leadership and all these kinds of things. Anyway, uh, what we'll see in the book of Acts is an incredible uh, work of the Holy Spirit through ordinary men, men who were originally afraid and cowering and going back to their work as fishermen, from here showing great boldness through the midst of suffering and opposition, yet through their boldness, God saves thousands And I just hope that it inspires us to be faithful with the gospel. This week's warning is about self-centered Bible interpretation. Self-centered Bible interpretation. That means reading selfish and uh, self-centered things into the scripture. It's a form of eisegesis. Okay, eisegesis means reading your own assumptions into the Scripture. That's you already believe what you believe, and then you go into the Bible and kind of cherry-pick things or, or um, twist the meaning of things to meet your, your idea of the world, your worldview. Uh, this form of interpretation treats Scripture more like a form of art or literature, uh, you know, like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It treats, it treats the Bible like that. I mean, you could look at a piece of, uh, you know, a painting— and it doesn't really matter what the painter meant to convey through the painting, because art is meant for you. It's meant for you to find meaning and, and significance in it you know, yourself. You can take art and read whatever you want into it, because that's that's kind of the point of it. Or a, a novel. You can read all kinds of significance into the novel, uh, whatever kind of floats your boat. But when it comes to Scripture, we're, we should not do that. That's not how we are to approach Scripture. God intended to communicate something. Um, it, the difference between reading Scripture and, and reading uh, like a novel is like this. Um, if you were to read an encyclopedia, which is meant to give you factual information, um, you can't just interpret the encyclopedia to mean whatever you want it to mean and whatever, whatever makes you feel good about the world. No, it's meant to convey something. And understanding that from Scripture, Scripture is given by God and had an intended meaning. And so um, let me give you an example of what eisegesis would look like. So eisegesis takes your assumptions and reads them into Scripture. So here's, here's one assumption that people have. You can't love others until you love yourself. Okay, Your greatest need is self-esteem and self-love. There's a Whitney Houston, Whitney Houston song, The Greatest Love of All. When you get into that song, the greatest love of all is to love yourself, right? That's the way that the world thinks, and that's what we're taught. So people will take that assumption to Matthew 22, 37 through 40, and they will sort of interpret it this way. Here's the passage. He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. All right, so it's, it's a very plain and straightforward passage. It says there's two commandments that the whole law and the prophets depend upon. But if you are going to read your assumptions into this, you have already assumed that, that you are to love yourself first so that you can love others. So you'll read three commands into this. Instead of love your God, love God and love your neighbor, 
Okay, you will read the third command is this, love yourself so that you can love your neighbor and love God. Okay, so you have taken these two commands, you turn them into three, you have read into the text uh, what you have already assumed, and therefore you are committing the deadly sin of eisegesis, reading your own interpretation into the Scripture. On the other hand, proper interpretation starts with exegesis. Exegesis. That means reading out from the passage its meaning. That means making observations about what it says and allowing that to plainly be interpreted according to the normal rules of, uh, of interpretation. So when you look at it, you have to understand that there was an original intention. And so if you're going to if you're going to read a text, say if you were to get a letter from George Washington, again, you can't you know, if you're to examine an old letter from George Washington, you have to understand that George Washington wrote what he wrote in a context that the words back then had a had particular meanings that may have changed over the course of time. That uh, that first of all, to understand it, you have to understand what the individual words mean. You have to understand what they mean in their context, and then it's helpful to understand the history, the historical background behind what's going on, so that you can exegete that letter, so you can understand what he's saying. And so there are there are important um, way important rules to proper interpretation of Scripture. And so there's some great books and great works on this, which we can provide to you. But um, suffice it to say that it's not rocket science, but there is a, a science to it. There is a science to in Bible interpretation. There are rules. There are objective ways to determine the meaning of a passage. Well, so beyond eisegesis, okay, there's many different ways that people commit eisegesis. And one of the ways that I want to highlight today is this self-centered brand of eisegesis that people often commit. And this is where you make everything in the Bible about you, and you immediately apply it to yourself. So for an example, the story of David killing Goliath. A self-centered eisegesis, a self-centered interpretation of this would, would basically put you as, uh, as King David, right? That David is you, and uh, that Goliath are your problems, and that and that, you know, you might say, oh, David was a sheep, you know, was a, was a shepherd, and he hung out with the sheep. And so, you know, a self-centered, eisegetical interpretation of this would be like, and see, when God wants to do something amazing in your life, he sometimes makes you hang out with stupid people like sheep, you know, or something like, I mean, it's, it's kind of a ridiculous way to put it, but there's this idea of putting yourself into the story in a way that it was not intended, something that was not intended to convey. Um, and so that's an example of self-centered eisegesis, right? Um, reading into the details of the story and, and applying them to your life in a way that, that was not intended, okay? And it makes you the hero. It makes you the, the, the center of it, okay? So that's an example of, a, of self-centered eisegesis and interpretation of Scripture. Now, I just want to expose you to it because I, we don't have time to get into teaching all the details of it, but... There will be uh, some resources provided uh, to you in the show notes uh, for where you can learn how to properly interpret Scripture on your own. All right, so with that, biblical hermeneutics is super important. That's that word, hermeneutics, the, the science 
the, the process of Bible interpretation, hermeneutics, and how do you understand what Scripture says? You know, Scripture says in, in Timothy that we are to be workmen who are not ashamed because we rightly divide the Scripture. There's nothing more important than getting the truth correct than, because that sets the whole course of your life. What is your understanding of truth, and where does it, what does God say? What does He mean? Because when we understand what God says and what we means, we understand it comes with His authority, and we will be held accountable to what He has said. And so we must get that part right. Thank you.